What is going on, everybody? Welcome to Getting Spooky with Sean. I'm your host, Sean. Welcome to the Boneyard. Today, we got a really exciting guest, and I'm really, really excited to have him on. Um, I've studied a lot of the of the things that he's done and where he's been in his life and the people that he's surrounded himself with. And today, I would like to bring you Father Vincent Lampert. How you doing, Father? I'm very good, Sean. It's good to be with you today. It's good to be here too. I, I'm I'm really excited. Uh, to be honest, I didn't know how this would play out. I, I I sent a message out and I was like, "Oh, I really hope Father Lampert gets back to me." And you did, and I'm I'm eternally grateful for that. Thank you. Yeah, I like to uh, do interviews with a variety a wide variety of folks, just as a way to help educate people, maybe put some information out there and allow people to listen to our conversation today and perhaps just challenge them to think about what it is that they believe themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. So father, would you like to give a formal introduction of yourself? Yes. My name is uh, father Vincent Lampert. I am a Roman Catholic priest of the archdiocese of Indianapolis. I've been a priest now for the past 32 years. So I was ordained in 1991. And back in 2005, my bishop appointed me to be the exorcist for the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. So I'm now in my 18th year of doing that ministry. And I received my training in Rome back in 2006. Wow. Well, that's a lot to unpack. <laughs> it's a lot to unpack. Uh, before we get into the heavy topic uh, of, of demons and exorcisms and stuff like that, uh, I've never really sat down and had a conversation with a priest mm -hmm. at all. <laughs> what what is the the normal day like for for a priest as yourself? Well, you know, in addition to being the exorcist, I'm also the pastor of two churches in southeastern Indiana. So I'm located about 35 miles outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. So just the everyday life of a parish priest dealing with uh, doing daily mass perhaps funerals, uh, meeting with people, talking about their own relationship with God, maybe planning a, a wedding. So it really, you know, as a parish priest, there are certain things I know I need to do each and every day, but literally each day is different because I don't really know who's going to reach out to me. I could get a call that, that one of my parishioners has passed away or has been in an accident and they need me to visit them in the hospital. So Really, each day is different. There's a base set of things I know that I need to do. But again, every day will bring its own challenges. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of, to me, it's interesting because we walk past churches every single day, whether they're Catholic churches, Baptists, what, what have mm -hmm. you. We walk past them every single day. We don't see the inner workings of what happens in those churches, you know, and sometimes we think that the buildings are empty, but they're not. And it's just it's amazing to see and, and to like be able to speak to somebody that that is their life. They've dedicated their life to to the God of their choosing, the God that they know and and one that they have a very personal relationship with. And so from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you for what you do for your community. Mm -hmm. Thanks. That's it. It's a very selfless work and very important work. Yeah, I think so, that's really, I was going to say that's one of the reasons why, at least in the Catholic tradition, uh, priests are referred to as father. It's almost like being a, the, like the head of a family, if you will. So each Catholic parish is composed up of a certain number of parish families. And then the priest is kind of like a spiritual figure, just helping to guide and direct people through the different things that they may experience in their ordinary lives and just trying to see how God is is moving and working in and through that because we all know that life comes with a lot of things that we just don't expect. You know, none of us, you know, kind of lives happily ever after. There's always circumstances that can impact our daily lives. And, you know, being being a person of faith just allows somebody to realize, again, that there is this higher power, if you will, that can help them that ultimately nobody is ever truly alone in the pain and suffering that they're going through. And I think the priest or any really any minister of any congregation tries to enforce that message 
into the folks that they deal with, just letting people know that they never have to walk alone. Absolutely. Absolutely. I do have a question as somebody in recovery, and I have a generalized idea of why it is. But from your experience, or if you can speak to it, why are 12 step meetings held in churches in the basement of churches? I think because uh, 12 step programs kind of had their origin in a faith based tradition, that notion that people really needed to surrender themselves to a higher power. Because oftentimes I think when people are caught up in some type of addiction, you feel like you're being held, you know, almost prisoner, you're trapped and there's not a way out. And I think from a faith perspective, it's a, it's a way to let people know that there's always a way out of any situation in which we find ourselves. And I think they're held in churches because churches should be a place of hope. Because a lot of times when people are down and out, you've reached a point where you feel like you're completely helpless and hopeless. But I think churches, regardless of their denomination or whatever, I think there's a common basic message, and that is there is hope for everyone that, you know, if you want to break out of whatever cycle you're in, that is possible. But again, we may need help in doing that. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would agree. I know uh, I felt hopeless. I felt uh, helpless. Uh, I felt like you said, I felt trapped in, in, in my addiction, and it wasn't until I was able to get into the 12-step programs and able to get in my own recovery and find that hope uh, that I was I was able to start working on myself and, and becoming a better version of myself. Hmm. So question that I had, and this has been just on my mind as I've been going through my morning. As a priest, do you watch movies? Uh, some, you know, I... Probably in recent years, I don't really watch a lot of movies or television or any of that type of thing. I'm an avid reader. I'm always reading about four or five books at a time. I have them scattered all over the place and I'll pick them up and read here or there. So I am aware of movies. I like to be conscious of what people may be watching, what's molding and shaping their outlook on certain topics such as evil. So I like to stay in the know. But my preference is to uh, to read. What is it that you are reading right now? Uh, books on, I read a lot of books that, that have to deal with the demonic, the reality of evil. I read books on the topic of faith, uh, books on God's role in people's lives. And because again, that helps me to kind of better frame, you know, kind of the message that any minister would try to put out to people. Yeah. I think a lot of people that find themselves you know, whether it's addiction or maybe dealing with the demonic, oftentimes they feel like they're alone. Yeah. And we all deal with brokenness in our lives. And I would like to say to people, when we deal with brokenness, we have two choices. We can deny it and allow the brokenness to control us or we can own it. And by owning it, then we can begin to do something about it. Absolutely. You know, anything I... that Anything that we can name, we can deal with. The things that we deny then control us. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I uh, actually just recently got on Audible and picked up some books by Father Marth, mm-hmm. and I, I really want to listen to it. Uh, I've, I've heard of his name here and there, and I know this isn't really like the best way to, to like figure his name out, but I watched The Pope's Exorcist, mm-hmm. and that got me really wanting to learn more about him and, and just who he was as a human being and who he was as an exorcist and stuff like that. And there's a story or his story on audible and I picked it up and I, I can't wait to listen to it. Yeah. I had the opportunity to meet him Yeah, uh, before he passed away. So father Gabriel Amorth was the former chief exorcist in Rome. He's probably credited with helping to bring the ministry of exorcism kind of into the, modern spotlight, if you will. Oftentimes people might think of exorcism and demons and the devil as kind of a throwback to, I don't know, the Middle Ages or to a time when mental health issues weren't well understood. But I think Father Amorth, he is the one who kind of brought the topic back into the modern discussion. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, I think it's it's a conversation that isn't isn't necessarily spoken about a lot. Um, and I, I, like, like we were talking before we hit record, um, 
for a long time, people that were dealing with some serious demonic uh, forces were put in hospitals or, or put away in insane, insane asylums and told you're crazy and essentially separated, which from my understanding, that's what a demonic force wants you wants to do is, is to separate you, isolate you from everybody around you and then, and then wreak havoc in your life. Yeah. That's that notion of divide and conquer. Any enemy would try to do that. And certainly the devil would try to do that to convince somebody that they're completely isolated and alone so that you completely abandon all sense of hope. But again, I think that's the key ingredient of any type of faith is that you discover there's a way out of any circumstance that you may find yourself in. There were years ago when I was in the seminary back in the 1980s. So seminaries where uh, a man would go to study to be a priest. Mm-hmm. And I remember a line in a book that I read that said, if you try to get rid of qualities about yourself that you don't like, then you declare yourself to be more and more non-existent and your devils grow fatter and fatter. So people who deal with addictions may not like that fact, but it's a part of the story of their life. Yeah. And we have to just accept that as a part of the story of our life. And when we accept it, we can put our lives on the road to recovery. But I think the demonic would be a force that would try to convince people that it is what it is, that there's no way out. There's that sense of hope, hopelessness, being abandoned, being isolated. Nobody cares. You're kind of out there on your own. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when you were, when you were just speaking about that, I, I couldn't help but think about uh, a line that I heard. I can't remember where I heard it from, but it was the greatest lie that devil ever told was that he doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of mirrored in addiction because addiction is the only, the only disease that tells you that you don't have a problem, that everybody else has the problem. So I kind of, when, when you said that, I was like, wow, that's mirrored, you know, uh, Satan and addiction is kind of mirrored itself in the, in the belief structure. Yeah, that, that line is from the uh, French poet Charles-Pierre Baudelaire, okay. who says the, the devil's cleverest ruse is to convince people that he doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I just, I couldn't help but, but make that, that weird parallel there. Mm-hmm. But, okay, so I'll, let, let's dive into it. What motivated you to become a priest? I grew up in a very traditional Catholic family in the city of Indianapolis. I have eight brothers and sisters. So the church was always a very, very much a part of our lives. I attended Catholic grade schools, Catholic high school. So faith was always important. So I think the the seeds of being a priest were planted early in my life. My mother, ironically, was not raised Catholic. So she became Catholic when she married my dad. So faith was always important to us. And I think it was the priest and the religious sisters that I knew from my days in school that helped to mold and shape that vocation to the priesthood. What what would you say has been the most challenging part um, early on in, in your priesthood? You know, I was ordained a priest in 1991. So I think obviously one of the challenges at the time, you look at the climate of the Catholic Church today, the church is in the news a lot about clergy sex abuse scandals and whatnot. So there's a lot of that ugliness. So choosing to be a priest at a time of a very dark moment, if you will, in the life of the church can be a bit challenging. Maybe years ago, being a priest, maybe somebody was kind of held in in esteem, if you will. But today, I think priests face a lot of ridicule and mockery just based on the clergy sex abuse scandal. So trying to carve out a priestly identity in the midst of all of that, I think has been a challenge. Oh, definitely. There's, there's a stigma around being a priest and it's, and, and I, I find it disheartening, you know, as somebody who, who doesn't necessarily follow the Catholic religion. Um, I find that disheartening for, for priests because you have to not only step into this role as a priest, but you have to, you have to kind of change the narrative and, and change what it looks like and be the best version of yourself and, mm-hmm. and continue to step in that role and, and, you know, uphold, uphold, um, all the regulations and the rules that you follow as a priest, but also, um, bring in, bring in, you know, new people into the family. Yeah. Cause I think there's a lot of people today that maybe will 
judge priests. You know, if there's one priest who's a pedophile, for example, I think there there are people that would be tempted to place all priests within that category, kind of collectively judging everyone who may have chosen this vocation in their life. You know, being a priest for 32 years, at least, and carving out a priestly identity over those years, you know, I'm I'm comfortable in who I am and, and in my priesthood and however people judge me or look at me, that's on them. I don't let other people, you know, judge or define who I am or my role as a priest. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree. Uh, I couldn't agree more with you. So fast forward and you're in this position where you start to, where, where, where you're ordained to be a, an exorcist. How did you feel like right off the bat when, when you were, when you were told, Hey, you're going to be an exorcist. What was that first initial thought for you? Yeah, I think people should know that as a Catholic priest, when you are ordained a priest, you promise obedience to your local bishop and his successors. So from a Catholic perspective, the bishop is the exorcist just by virtue of his office. And then a bishop can appoint one or more of his priests to do this ministry in his name. So back in 2005, the exorcist in Indianapolis passed away. Now, ironically, he was the priest where I attended grade school at the local parish there. Wow. You know, bringing in a mental health component too. you know, the parish was located right across the street from the old central state mental hospital in Indianapolis. Oh, wow. And there was a city park that connected to the grounds of the mental hospital. And that's where we had recess and playground when I was in grade school. Wow. So we used to actually go out on the playground and then the residents at the mental a hospital would come up and just converse and talk with us. So there's a mental hospital across the street. So there's the, the mental health component. And then the priest there is the exorcist. And then he passed away in 2005 uh, due to cancer. And then the bishop uh, selected me. So I was in my 14th year as a priest. The church does say that a priest should not be appointed to the ministry early on in his priesthood. You really have to build up a priestly identity. And then the bishop said he chose me because he wanted a priest who believed in the reality of evil, but also someone he thought that would bring a good, well-balanced approach, meaning not everyone who comes to me who believes they're dealing with the demonic, that that would be the case. Because yeah. it's always important to look at anyone and to say, is the person suffering spiritually? Are they suffer suffering mentally? Or are they suffering physically? So you collectively bring it in together, the priest or the medical doctor or the mental health expert, and basically saying, obviously, we know this person is suffering. What are the causes of that suffering? Yeah. I think that's very important, that statement that you that you made, the, to decipher between physical, uh, mental, or spiritually. I think that's important because I feel like a lot of people have this notion that Catholic priests are just out there willy-nilly, you know, exercising demons out of people. And, and that's not necessarily the case. No, I, actually, I'm trained to be a skeptic. Yeah. I should be the last one to believe that somebody's truly dealing with demonic forces. That's why, at least in the United States, there's a protocol that we follow where the person's required to have some type of a mental health evaluation and even a physical examination by a medical doctor. Sometimes people will hear the the line that the church requires a mental health evaluation and say, well, the church doesn't believe me that it's demonic. But the reality is, if it is demonic, somebody needs to be in a good mental place before going through an exorcism, kind of take the edge off, if you will. Otherwise, it could end up causing greater harm than good. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I find that's very important, too. You know, like like you said, they have to be in a good place mentally in order to go through that because it can, from my understanding, it can get very tumultuous. Absolutely. And again, that's why working together with mental health experts and a family doctor is because the goal is to bring relief into the life of the person who is suffering. And sometimes there can be a combination of both. You know, maybe there is a mental health component and a demonic component going on at the same time. As a priest, I can deal with the spiritual component but we also need to rely on the mental health expert to deal with any, mel any mental health related issue the person may have. 
so again it's trying to work together absolutely i also uh i also liked how you said um that you were appointed by your bishop because you believe in the, that that evil exists and that there that there is evil out there and i think from a perspective and i'm just going to step into this and step out i think in the perspective of if there's god there has to be a an equal and opposite you know what i mean mm-hmm. and and if you believe what the bible says then there has to be an equal and opposite there if, if there's god there's there has to be a satan or the point of jesus coming and dying on the cross would have meant nothing and so mm-hmm. i was having a conversation with a friend about that last night too and i said if the existence of god is there there has to be you know the existence of the devil satan what have you because the Jesus' sacrifice would have meant nothing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if I'm a little bit off there, let me know. But that's what I that's that's where I, I feel I lie. I think you're right on target there because you know the notion of, you know, from a faith perspective, when it comes to Jesus, people oftentimes use the word redemption. What does the word redemption mean? I like etymology. I just love the, the, the meaning of words. Mm-hmm. And the word etymology literally means to buy back. So when Jesus dies on the cross, what is he doing? He's buying us back from what? The fall of humanity that took place. If you look at the the book of Genesis, that account of the fall of Adam and Eve. So then Jesus pays the price to bring humanity back into a right relationship with God. And we all have free will. So we can either choose to accept what Jesus has done or not. But again, the the invitation is there. Absolutely. Now, I have a question. That, once again, I've been pining over these questions for a little bit today. Uh, one question that I have is, do you believe that people are inherently evil? Or is there, are, are people pure and then and evil is introduced into their life? I, I would say that everything and everyone that God creates is good because God is good. So all of creation is good. Sometimes people can corrupt their goodness uh, by turning to evil. So even look at the question of the, of the devil. Did God create the devil? And the answer ultimately would be no, because God doesn't create anything that's bad or evil. But God has given angelic creatures and humans free will. So God creates us, we are good, but then what we do with our free will determines whether or not we will be good or turn to the evil. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, moving forward. Uh, I'm really enjoying this conversation. I I really like it. I I love it. But uh, moving forward, you you go to Rome and and you start or you start learning how to become an exorcist and, and all the elements within it. What was one of the more shocking things that you learned once you stepped into that role? You know, I went to Rome because when I was appointed, I became one of only 12 Catholic exorcists in the United States. And the church says the best way to learn the ministry is through the apprenticeship model to work under a seasoned exorcist. But because there were so few in the United States, and unfortunately the priest in Indianapolis before me when he passed away, he wasn't able to pass on his knowledge. It's easy to pick up a book and read and and understand what the church believes and teaches about the reality of evil and the devil. But there is that need to really kind of have an internship where you actually deal with it. Think of the medical student who studies and studies and studies, but they need that internship where they get their hands-on experience. So in Rome, I had the opportunity to sit in on 40 exorcisms over the three months that I was there. Wow. So the priest that was training me allowed me to sit in on 40, and that allowed me to see firsthand the church's ministry of those who were up against the forces of evil and who were seeking the help of the church. So really that hand, hands-on, being able to see it firsthand, you know, completely indispensable in taking on this role in the life of the church. Was that was that first exorcism intimidating? Like, did you walk in there and you're like, oh, I'm nervous. I am really scared right now. It was, you know, I very vividly remember the first one. You know, this priest, he was a pastor of a church outside of Rome. 
So I would take about a 15 minute bus ride. And then it was an old church near one of the largest cemeteries in Rome. Mm -hmm. So there's the church, there was a courtyard. There were about 50 people gathered in the courtyard when I arrived first time. Then there was a small cluster of buildings where the priest who was training me had his office. So some of these people in the courtyard had uh, appointments to see him. Some would just showed up in the hopes that they would be able to talk with him. Some people are already manifesting the demonic in the courtyard. So you could see the kind of the image from the Bible, the, the welling and the gnashing of teeth and the growling and all of that from the people who were possessed that were uh, waiting to see him. Wow. And then I uh, sat down and met with a, um, an Italian lady and her husband. And this lady was telling me that she became possessed due to uh, curses. And so I'm talking to her and her husband. And people need to realize because somebody's possessed doesn't mean they're manifesting the demonic yeah. 24 hours a day. To be possessed means that one has created a connection with the demonic in their life. And then something will trigger the demonic to show itself. So I'm talking to her thinking, well, this doesn't seem to be so bad. And then uh, the priest training me, he's in another room and then he walks back in and he puts a roll of paper towels on the table and then he walks back out. He comes back in again and he ties a plastic grocery bag onto this small uh, wall radiator. And then he walks back out. So I'm kind of watching him out of one eye and I'm talking with this lady and her husband. And, and then this priest comes back in again and he's a Franciscan priest. So he's wearing brown robes. And then he has a purple stole. It's a piece of cloth that the priest will wear over his neck as a sign of the priestly office. Mm -hmm. And then he has the rite of exorcism in one hand and holy water in the other. He takes the holy water and he blesses this lady. And as soon as the drops of water hit her forehead, her eyes rolled in the back of her head. She began to growl and snarl. Her face contorted. And then her eyes refocused with this very dark, hideous grin on the face and then looking at me and i'm thinking to myself <laughs> what in the world have i got myself into and uh she's growling and, and foaming at the mouth and i'm looking at this kind of in disbelief but then the priest training me reaches over he tears off a paper towel he wipes the foam off the mouth of this person and then throws it in the grocery bag on the wall radiator and just continues you know anything the church does in an exorcism is meant to force the demon to show itself because ultimately the demon would not want to reveal itself that it has an attachment to this person but demons are very arrogant and they cannot accept the fact that they're being commanded to do something by a creature that they consider to be inferior to themselves yeah. i have a uh, an exorcist friend who told me he was doing an exorcism and when the demon manifested the reason it manifested, it was so angry and, and said to the priest, you stupid monkey, who do, are you to think, who are you to tell me what to do? Because demons are very, they're very intellectual. You know, you mentioned the movie, you know, uh, The Pope's Exorcist. Many people may be familiar with the movie Nefarious. Yeah. It has also come out recently. And that's a dialogue between a man on death row who is possessed and his lawyer, who's an atheist. What's interesting about that movie, at least, it demonstrates the intellect of the demons. And oftentimes that's a component that people pass over. It's always easy to look at the theatrics and the manifestations, but we really have to look at the intellectual quality of the devil and how he uses that as a way to lure people into his deception. Absolutely. I, I, I was going to bring up Nefarious, but you did before I could. And that movie, when I, when I saw the trailer for it, I was like, oh, this looks really good. I, I love horror movies. I like movies <laughs> that deal with the demonic, uh, naturally. So I think as humans, we get intrigued with that stuff. But when I watched it, I got chills just running through my body because just as you said, it it doesn't show the theatrics. It shows the intellectual side of demonic forces, right? And how cunning and baffling they can be, right? And he even spelled out what the plan of, of the demonic was and what the plan of Satan was right in front of, of 
his his lawyer or the psychologist when the psychologist didn't believe him he just looked at me he's like yeah i don't i don't believe you so i'm i'm sitting here in, in my seat and i'm like how could you not he literally just told you what he's gonna do and you don't believe him yeah it's just it, it's it's amazing but that story or or that experience that you had i got chills thinking about it too <laughs> i can envision it as you were as you were sharing it um what what are some ways that that demonic forces can attach themselves to to uh, to a human being? That's a great question because when I work with somebody who believes they're dealing with the demonic, the thing I always try to determine is what was the entry point. You know, the average person doesn't really need to be concerned about becoming possessed. You know, it's the normal aspects of faith that will always keep evil at bay. But there are some ways that I've seen over the years that people create an entry point, such as maybe ties to the occult world and and all of that, that it brings being cursed, being dedicated to a demon, people who foster relationships with demons, uh, abuse, which can create uh, a sense of woundedness, where maybe the person will turn rather than turning to God, they turn away from God. Uh, habitual sin. And maybe I, you know, some addictive behavior certainly can do that because again, people are that are turning away from God. And when they turn away from God, they can make themselves more vulnerable. You know, we're all sinners. We all do crazy things in life. But the question is, do we repent? Do we own it? And to say, wow, that was really a dumb thing to do. And then try to put our lives back on a better path. And when we do that, you know, entry points are a way that we invite the demon in. When we repent, it's a way of telling the, the demon to get out. A, a good definition of an exorcism would be this. It's a command given to a demon to return that which it has stolen, namely a person who has been created in the image and likeness of God. So the, the demonic would want to convince somebody that they're, they're worthless. They're just a useless piece of garbage, if you will. They really have no inherent value or dignity. But in the rite of exorcism, it's really reminding people of who they are, namely a person created in the image and likeness of God and whose they are, that we belong to God. You know, you, men you mentioned earlier about, you know, is evil inherently evil? Or, you know, is it, you know, like demons, are they inherently evil? That's just who they are. But again, God has created everything that is good, but we can choose to distort that goodness. We're not sinners trying to be saints. We are saints, meaning we're holy because God has created us, but sometimes we sin. And the difference is, do we own that sin? And by owning it, we can do something about it. From a Christian perspective, we can invite Christ into our lives and he can help us put the, the pieces of our broken lives back together. Or do we reject all of that and to live in brokenness? You know, one of the uh, persons that I visited over the years was a young man who told me that he had dedicated his life to Satan. Mm -hmm. And his brother was concerned about him. So I went and visited them at their apartment. And this young man, his bedroom consisted of nothing but an altar to Satan in one corner and broken glass uh, scattered all across the floor. So there was no furniture in there. And he would literally kneel on broken glass in front of his altar to Satan. But that broken glass just spoke to me about the brokenness that this man has. But again, from a faith perspective, it's about helping put people put the broken pieces of their lives back together. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's pretty deep. That's, that's, I get like, like you said, vision, I, I could envision that, that altar and that glass on the floor. And it, it like you said, it speaks volumes to putting, you know, people's lives back together, the brokenness of their lives. Are, from my understanding, there's different phases of how a demon enters somebody's life or not enters, but uh, occupies, you know, the, the spirit or the human body with oppression, possession. And I'm not sure the other, um, the other stages. Uh, could you speak to those and like, and share what some of those are? Yeah. 
from the Catholic perspective, there we talk about the extraordinary activity of the devil and the ordinary activity of the devil. So there are four types of extraordinary demonic activity. You touched on some of them. So demonic infestation, the presence of evil in a location, or perhaps associated with some type of an object. Think of a voodoo doll, for example. There can be, I, I use the term uh, demonic vexation, which are physical attacks. There is demonic obsession, which are mental attacks. Literally, the devil's trying to get inside of somebody's head so that everything that they're thinking is being filtered through the presence of evil. And then there is demonic possession, whereby the devil or some other evil spirit would take control of the person's body, treating that body as if it were its own, using the person's mouth to speak, their ears to hear. When a person is possessed, it's so important to make the clear distinction between that person as an individual and now the demon who's using that body as if it were its own. So, for example, if you know John Doe is possessed, and when the demon is manifesting, I would never say John Doe did this or said that. Everything has to be wholly defined by the demon who's now using that person's body as if it were its own. When it comes to uh, ordinary activity of the devil, that has to do with temptation, something that we can all struggle with in our daily lives. And when it comes to the ordinary activity of the devil, I believe he has a four-stage plan of attack that he uses against us. They're all words that begin with the letter D. So it begins with deception, which leads to division, which leads to diversion, which leads to discouragement. So ordinary activity, the devil would want us to buy into his lies. There is the deception. When we buy into the devil's lies and we don't repent, it leads to division. We find ourselves broken. And ultimately, when we're broken, we need to turn to God to help put the pieces of our lives back together. But a lot of times when people give into the devil's lies, they may not feel worthy of God. So they turn away from God and that's diversion. They look for a substitute for God in their lives. It may even be some type of an addictive um, behavior that somehow people believe that is giving them a sense of, I don't know, completeness or wholeness in their lives. There's a great line from St. Augustine. He lived back during the late 4th to early 5th centuries. You have created us for yourselves, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So the human person, I believe, has the innate desire for God, this higher power, to bring a sense of cohesion to our existence. But once we buy into the deception, which leads to the division, which leads to the diversion, Ultimately, it leads to discouragement. And I believe that there are more people discouraged today. They lack any sense of meaning, purpose, or direction in their lives. Something that I believe that only that God can give. You know, discouragement in the Christian uh, context is called Akkadia. It's a word, it comes from the Greek word, and it basically means, I don't care. People reach the point that they're so discouraged that they find no joy, no hope, no purpose in life. And they just walk around kind of without, you know, kind of like a zombie look, if you will. Yeah. Just a, a frown on their face. There's just, there's just no joy whatsoever. Yeah. I've, oh, as you were explaining the last, I almost got choked up because I've been there. And um, when you were explaining, like, just walking around like a zombie, I, a few years ago, my depression was so bad that I could find myself, I could be content staring at a TV, a blank TV for hours and just not feeling anything. And like you said, Acadia, like I didn't care. And mm -hmm. it, it, it was just, it was like the life was sucked out of me and I didn't have anything to be grateful for. I, I mean, I had tons to be grateful for. I just couldn't see it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I started getting a little choked up there. <laughs> well, you, you know, the thing is, when people arrive at discouragement, I think it's a crossroads. Yeah. You have a choice to make. One pathway, I say, will lead to death. Always spiritual, the complete rejection of God or any higher power, but sometimes even physical death. You think of the, the growing trend of, su of suicide in our society. So many people just reach the point where they just think that somehow things would be better if they just didn't 
if they weren't here, if they weren't alive. But the other pathway, I think it's the message of faith, is hope. People rediscover that they need God, this higher power in their life, and they recommit themselves to God or this higher power. And in doing so, they begin to climb out of that hole of deception and division and diversion and discouragement. And they begin to find that, yes, there is a reason to live. Life is a great gift from God and we can find joy and we can find hope. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, earlier, you were speaking about uh, places being haunted or, or th items being all haunted. And one of the things that was brought up when I was looking through some of the things that you've done, you went to the house that Zach Fagan bought. <laughs> how, how was that experience for you? You know, those places, those places don't phase me in the least. Yeah. Not at all. You know, I know that's very popular today, whether it houses that are so-called haunted or yeah. people go on ghost tours in certain towns. You know, I know uh, my sister and I went, took a little trip a few years ago and we were in Savannah, Georgia. Oh. And that's supposedly a place where a lot of people go on these ghost tours. But the thing about evil is uh, because evil is our pure spirits, mm -hmm. Uh, they don't live in any location. In fact, we would say that they're neither here nor there. We say that they're here or there if they're choosing to act there. So the demon doesn't live in the abandoned, you know, insane asylum, if you will. Yeah. Oftentimes, it's the things that people are doing there that are uh, causing, gaining the attention of the demons and causing them to manifest there. Because ultimately, what do demons want? They want our destruction. You know, they want to destroy the human person. So it's not like the demon has an address where he's like, hey, I'm sitting at 105 Holloway Drive. <laughs> I had a ghost hunter who told me one time that, you know, he place was haunted and he was leaving. And he said, you know, any demons that are here, you're not allowed to follow me home. But again, how do spirits move? And from a Catholic perspective, looking at folks like St. Thomas Aquinas, they move by thought. They don't have to catch a plane or a car or anything like that. Yeah. They think and they're there. Yeah. So whether it's this, you know, house that's supposedly haunted, the demon just can say, think it, and they're there. Yeah. So angelic thought, angelic movement. Makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. And I like how I do like how you put like uh, the demon doesn't just live here like he's <laughs> he's everywhere, yeah. I I and, and it, it's it's intention too, right? It's intention. If you go into a place with the intentions of of summoning a demon or or doing doing occult activities, you're going to get that in return. Yeah, so it's also one's perspective on this entity that they're encountering. Yeah, do they somehow believe? that it's powerful. You know, from a Christian perspective, we should never put God and any demon on the same playing field. They're still on different levels, you know, because even demonic creatures, well, they're creatures. There was a time when they did not exist. So there's a difference between the creator and any creature. But again, demons are very powerful. They're very intellectual. And so we need to make sure that we don't give in to fear and you know demons play on a person's memory and imagination they would want to instill fear because people that live in fear can be controlled yeah. and i think from the perspective of faith it's about bringing people out of fear and into this sense of hope where then people can realize that it doesn't matter what the demonic is doing because a person has chosen to live within the realm of god which is greater than the realm of satan Absolutely. So when we watch these movies that Hollywood produces and, and they, sh they show, they show somebody being delivered from uh, the demonic force that is, that is attached to them. They show this like huge boom, boom, boom. I think we know that it's not real, that, that the big explosion, the big pop isn't real. And from your perspective and what you've been through, what is it normally like when somebody's delivered from that that evil um, that has been in, attached to them? It kind of replicates what we see in the New Testament in the gospel accounts of Jesus doing exorcisms. Yeah. 
there's usually some type of a shriek or scream. And then in my experience, there is a, a glow about the person. And the best way to describe the glow is many people have probably seen a picture of a saint and there's always a halo around their head. Now they're not radiating their glory. They're radiating the glory of God. So much did they bring their life into line with what God would expect and hope for the human person that they begin to radiate that glory of God. Best way to try to describe it. So I'll tell you a story. So I, I did an exorcism on a, uh, a person who became possessed due to abuse. She told me that at the age of seven, her father began to rape her and it continued for five years. So I, I do hear some pretty horrific things from uh, folks that are dealing with the demonic. Well, she said that at the age of 12, her father then turned his attention to her younger sister. She was shattered. She was broken. She said that she blamed God for allowing this to happen. So she rejected God and then turned to the world of the occult who said that they could help put the pieces of her life back together. But then she said she never felt any relief. She only felt even more broken than before. So she's telling me the story and then she's sobbing uncontrollably. And then she says, will you help me? And, and I said, well, Jesus can help you. And when I said that, her eyes turned green and her pupils became slanted like a serpent. And this voice came out of her mouth and said, who's he? He has no power over us. And then um, as an exorcist, I prepare myself. There's no such thing as an emergency exorcism. Yeah. When that's done, the devil usually has the upper hand. So I prepare myself and, and where an exorcism will be performed and who else will be present. So a week later, I'm doing the exorcism on this lady. She has a friend with her. And then there's another priest with me. And when I begin the rite of exorcism and I bless her with holy water, the green eyes came back again and the slanted pupils. And the demon looked at me and said, you can't get rid of us. We've been here too long and you're not strong enough. Again, trying to have that instill fear in me, if you will. So I continue with the rite of exorcism from a Catholic perspective. Holy water reminds us of our baptism into Christ. There is the, the litany of the saints invoking the presence of the holy men and women down through the ages that we believe are in heaven to be present in this prayer of the church. A part of the rite also includes the, it's called the insufflation prayer. It's breathing on the face of the one who is possessed. It recalls Jesus breathing on his disciples and saying, receive the Holy Spirit. It's the notion that wherever the Holy Spirit is present, an unclean spirit cannot remain. So during the rite, when I breathe on the face of the person and invoke the Holy Spirit, uh, the chair the person was sitting in flew back 10 feet and hit the wall. And then there was a shriek and a scream. And the lady comes flying out of the chair and she lands on the floor. Myself and the other priests pick her up and she's praising and glorifying God. And there's a glow about her face. Wow. Again, that's an indication that the demon has been cast out. And here she is radiating the glory of God and now singing the praises of God. Wow. That, that's intense. <laughs> that's pretty, it's pretty intense. And each, you know, each exorcism is different. Yeah. Because you just don't know what type of demonic entity one may be dealing with. Is it yeah. the devil himself? Is it some other lesser demon, if you will? So I've worked with a person for well over a year before they were delivered. This person with the, you know, the green eyes, uh, that took 45 minutes. Oh, wow. So each case is really different. There's no way of determining to say this is the normal. There is no such norm yeah. because every person and their situation is unique and different. Now, have you encountered Satan himself? Yes. I was assisting a, 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 an exorcism in, a, in another state. I can only help in another area if I'm invited by that local bishop. And uh, this man was possessed by Beelzebul, which is the devil. It means Lord of the Flies. And uh, the devil is associated with death because his lie to Adam and Eve in the garden 
when he said, surely you will not die, you know, brought death into the world. And also the demon Molech, which is a, uh, a demon that people used to sacrifice their children to. And at one point, the demon Molech begins to chant. And then I commanded the demon to tell me what it was saying. And the demon said that in its own language, it was glorifying Satan because Satan was the chief of all the demons. And he wishes to show his, you know, fealty, his, you know, fidelity to Satan and to honor and worship him. Wow. Wow man <laughs> was that was that a little bit nerve-wracking when you hear the name satan pop up in the exorcist or an exorcism you know it, it may be on some level but you know 18 years into this it it doesn't phase me or cause me any fear you know i one of the exorcisms you know in rome you know after the 40 that i set in on before i left rome i sat down and kind of had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the priest who trained me and just wanted to ask some questions. So I did ask him what was the most difficult uh, exorcism that he ever performed. And at the time he had been doing it for 25 years. And he said that he had worked with somebody for five years. And he said this man that was possessed, the demon would be very reluctant into naming itself. In the rite of exorcism, the priest can command the demon to name itself. Because when you know the name of a person, you have a certain amount of power and authority and control over them. And so the priest said, he said to the demon that was possessing this man, is your name Lucifer? And he said, the demon responded, I used to be known by that name, but no longer. You know, before he fell, yeah. you know, Satan was Lucifer, the greatest of all the angelic creatures. But uh, the priest who trained me said in that response, he learned that the devil can no longer use the name Lucifer because to use the name Lucifer is to acknowledge the giver of that name, namely God himself. And because Satan has rejected God, then he can no longer acknowledge the name Lucifer, which God had given to him. Wow. Wow. Well, my question to you, I guess, is what is the most difficult exorcism that you've ever been a part of? You know, it was probably the one that I did early on. So after returning from Rome, there was a, uh, a person that I began to work with and they were possessed by seven demons. Ooh. Oftentimes when people are possessed, it's rarely is it a case of one demon. It's usually multiple kind of they're acting in a cluster and there's usually a higher ranking demon who's in control. Yeah. From a Catholic perspective, we would say there is a hierarchy in the angelic world. And when these angels fell, one third of them, as we learned from the book of Revelation, they fell from all nine choirs of the angels. So just as much as there is a hierarchy in the angelic world, there is a hierarchy in the demonic world. The weakest of the demons are always the first to go. So I worked with this lady for uh, about a year. The weakest demons were gone. But the higher ranking demon refused to go. You know, it's interesting when you read the Bible accounts of demons, when they speak to Jesus, they go back and forth from speaking in the singular to the plural. In chapter four of Luke's gospel, you know, when the demon speaks, it says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Have you come against us before the appropriate time? So this one demon in this lady that refused to leave told me, his name was Leviathan. It's a demon mentioned in the Bible, the great sea monster. And the demon said it didn't have to leave because the, the woman had done something that had invited the demon in and gave the demon permission to act in her life. And then uh, I still remember when the demon was cast out. So it was a, uh, I think it was in the month of late August, it was hot out. It was about three o'clock in the afternoon and I was in a convent chapel in Southern Indiana doing this exorcism. And the demon Leviathan was manifesting and howling and growling and snarling. And I told the demon to say these words from chapter one of Luke's gospel. It's when the archangel Gabriel greets Mary and says, hail full of grace. 
So I told the demon to say, Hail Mary, full of grace, and then to leave. And then the demon laughed at me and said, grace of fool, kind of scrambled the words around and then began to scream. And then about that time, a bell rings. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. School is letting out at this Catholic parish where we're doing the exorcism. 400 children are now pouring out onto the parking lot just below the window where the exorcism is taking place. The demon begins to scream with the most hideous and loud scream that you can imagine and then says to me, stop praying. If you stop praying, I will stop screaming. But if you keep praying, I will scream even louder. People are going to hear the screams and they're going to come in here and see what you're doing. And then you're going to have to stop anyway, so stop now. And then the demon began to scream. And then I said to the demon, I command you to obey me in all things, although an unworthy minister of Christ, to say the words, Hail Mary, full of grace in that order, and to leave immediately. And this demon that had been speaking in this very deep authoritative voice, in a childlike voice said, Hail Mary, full of grace. And then there was a shriek and a scream. And then this woman began to glow and began to sing the praises of God. That's amazing. Terrifying, but amazing. <laughs> um, but as an exorcist, yeah. you learn to focus on what God is doing and not what the devil is doing, which yeah. is why, from my perspective, it would not be terrifying. It would be glorifying. Yeah. The focus Absolutely. is always on God. I have a few more questions. Um, let's say you put the Bible in front of somebody that is supposed or, or thinks that they are possessed and they cannot read. Is that a sign? Like they can't read out of the Bible. Is that like a sign that, that yeah, they, they couldn't, if they couldn't read it, yeah. sometimes just the presence of the Bible would be enough to trigger yeah. the demonic. So may anything of a sacred nature being in a church, a chapel, having the Bible read in front of them, having the Bible placed on top of their head as a prayer is being said, the use of holy water, the use of a cross or a crucifix. So any of these things could be an indication that a demon is present. There's three other things that the church would look for as well. So we've been touching on a very negative reaction to anything of a sacred nature. Other ones would be the ability to speak and understand languages, otherwise unknown to the individual. That would show the demonic intellect because when god created the angelic world he gave them infused knowledge kind of like a computer being downloaded with information angels don't have to learn anything you know we go to school and we learn but they can just call it up so if i know the person that i'm working with doesn't speak greek and now all of a sudden greek is coming out of the person's mouth then that would let me know that this is no longer that person as an individual this is now the demon who's manifesting and using their body. Yeah. Uh, another thing would be a superhuman strength beyond the normal capacity of that individual. And then having elevated perception, knowledge about things that I, that I know that that person as an individual otherwise should not know. Wow. Cause I'm a veteran. I don't think that I told you that, but uh, I'm a veteran and I was in the army for 12 and a half years. And there was a, situation I encountered in Afghanistan one night and uh, one of my friends said, I feel like there's something wrong with me spiritually. And I was like, all right, well here. And I, I grabbed my Bible, I opened up to Psalms 92 and he was like, I, I cannot make out those words. He's like, I don't know what they mean. Mm. And now I can't, <laughs> I'm not an exorcist, <laughs> but to me, I was like, there's definitely something wrong with him. And then it triggered a response, right? Like it, it just didn't, that wasn't the only thing. It triggered some weird response that like at the time I could look at and be like, that's definitely weird. But at, you know, in the moment I was, I was, I was actually scared, you know, he, and he was doing some things that like, I was like, okay, look, and now I don't know how to handle this. <laughs> so I kind I stepped back from it. Uh, but yeah, that was that was uh, it's a terrifying thing, a situation that I that that I was in, in in that moment. I'm glad that I stepped away from that. And that's a good thing because sometimes people may find themselves in a position where maybe 
the demonic is around them. So like your friend not able to read the Bible. In those situations, the best thing in my experience is just to to say a prayer. Yeah. And maybe even a prayer that the person might know, such as reciting the Lord's Prayer, for example, that many yeah. people may be familiar with. And then that's a way when the person starts praying those words with you, then you know that the demonic is no longer manifesting and your friend is back. I did have another situation when I came back and I lived in North Carolina. Um, I got a phone call from a friend's wife and she said, can you come over here and help? And there's a series of events that led up to things. Um, There was a voice that I audibly heard that didn't come from him. Um, And then lack of better terms, uh, I would say it was a possession. Um, We called his mother who, um, who is, is a devout Catholic and, um, she started praying with him, uh, praying the Lord's prayer. And he would get to a certain point and vomit every single time. And, or, or he would get to that point in the prayer. And it was like something had his tongue and wouldn't let him speak. And, and I, I said, Hey, look, I love you, but I, I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> like, I don't know how to help you. All I, all I advise is like, go to church. If, if that, if, if this is bothering you and you think that this is something demonic, go to church because I'm not equipped to handle this. And that's, that's so important because we can encounter people that may be dealing with the demonic and just being well-intentioned is not enough because if somebody starts to manifest that maybe they are possessed, we have to be able to help them. And if we aren't able to help them, it's kind of best to kind of let things lie low. And then like you did refer them to somebody who can truly help them. No, I, you know, even though I'm a Catholic priest, more than half the people I deal with are not Catholic. They come from other Christian faith traditions, other world religions, some with no faith background whatsoever. I had a lady who came to me from a different uh, faith tradition and she said people were praying over her and, and the demon manifested and the people were so scared they ran out of the room. So here the demon, because the things that we do from a faith perspective will force the demon to reveal itself. But then once it reveals itself, we have to be prepared to deal with that. If we're terrified and run out of the room, then I think we've done greater harm than good. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you, you bring forth that, that demonic spirit that may have been like, you know, subsurface and yeah. you just bring, and, and now it's manifested and you've, you've created this doubt that anybody can help me. Yep. Absolutely. So how can, how, I think I know the answer, but I want to hear from you. How can people protect themselves against, uh, demonic forces? You know, I think it's the ordinary aspects of, of faith. So we don't have to do anything extraordinary to defeat the devil. It's the ordinary aspects of our faith. You know, I think there's a danger where maybe in society today, a lot of people have just become bored with their faith or maybe no longer believe that it's relevant. You know, none of us has to be a holy roller. But, you know, when when I talk about the ordinary aspects of faith, you know, you go to church or some house of worship, whichever one that you go to, you pray, you know, you read God's word, you read the Bible. Just doing these ordinary things will always keep the devil at bay. So we don't have to do anything extraordinary. And because we're all sinners, when we know that we've done wrong, own it, you you know, repent, acknowledge that we've made a mistake. You know, humans, we have the capacity to grow in understanding. We can say to ourselves, that was a really dumb thing to do. Now, we can't go back and undo it, but we learn from it and then we move forward. So we, we don't live in the past. We recognize that, yeah, I did something wrong, but I've given that over to God and now I move forward. You know, the devil, I think, always wants us to live in the past. That's why even the name Satan means accuser. You know, the devil may get us to do something wrong and then he's the first one to say, ah, ha, ha, look, look. And I think guilt is one of the ways that the devil gets a foothold in our lives. We just constantly beat ourselves up and say, why did I do that? Why do I do that? And ultimately, we just have to reach the point where we can say, yeah, I did that. But the person I am today is not the person I was then, that we've had a conversion or a change in our lives. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Father, before we go, where can we find you? I think if anybody goes out on social media, they're going to find me. So <laughs> Yeah, you just Google your name and you're there. You know, uh, when my bishop appointed me, uh, he gave me permission to be public. Many Catholic exorcists are not known. But I believe in by being public, it's a way to to help people and to help educate them. And again, people can listen to my perspective. They can agree or disagree, but at least I've given them my perspective and that gives them something either to to build on or to go off in some different type of direction. You know, the role of the church is not to impose, but to propose. So I can propose what the church teaches about the reality of evil and how people can address that, but we don't impose it. And then what people do with that is up to themselves. But ultimately the ministry of exorcism is about helping people who may have fallen into the grasp of evil, the devil's hand, if you will, and to let them know there is a way out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I want to take a moment and say thank you, Father Lampert, for sitting with me and hanging out with me and sharing <laughs> your experience. I I thoroughly enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. My pleasure. My pleasure, Sean. And uh, I, I, you're always welcome back on my show. Um <laughs> To, to share your experiences. I love hearing about, about this side of things and also just what people believe in. I think it's important to educate versus degrade. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I agree. All righty. So everybody, thank you guys for hanging out with Father Lampert and myself and uh, listen to him share his experience with us. And I hope that you learned something. And until uh, next time, have a good day. Much love.